Today's readings taken from Psalm 46. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth the song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the heat of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is my fortress. This is the word of God. Uh, if you keep your Bibles open, that would be great. Um, I'm not wearing shorts or flip-flops, and I've had a shave, so I must be preaching. So I want to ask you this morning, do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you read the news and do you feel like evil is kind of winning in the world? I mean, look at the rise of Islamic State, the way they seem to be so easily spreading their propaganda and how their activity seems to be growing. Do you ever feel like, well, if God really is in charge, why is all this happening? Maybe God is not in control, or maybe he just doesn't care enough to get involved. Or what about the general culture? Think of the recent uh, Supreme Court decision on gay marriage in the U.S. The culture seems to be growing increasingly more hostile to Christian ethics and what God has said in the Bible. They now accuse Christians of homophobia and attacking other people's identities, and their toleration for our beliefs is getting ever shorter. Think of all the abortion debates, the gender issues. The culture around us is just becoming more and more distant from the teaching of God in the Bible. Christians used to be regarded as quite nice citizens, maybe a bit wacky, but now we're seen as just out of date and intolerant. Or do you read about new floods happening in the world, or droughts, or earthquakes? And you just feel like, well, God doesn't really seem to be in control. Things are getting a bit out of hand. The world is literally collapsing around us. So actually, the world that the psalmist portrays here in the psalm is not one that has changed very much. I mean, look at his description of mountains quaking and falling, of waters roaring and foaming. The creation itself is in chaos, and we know this all too well. I mean, just since the year 2000, We've witnessed some of the deadliest natural disasters in recording history. Think of the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. Think of the earthquake in Haiti. Um, the Kashmir earthquake in 2005. The Sichuan earthquake in 2008. And more recently, the devastation in Nepal. 
It just seems like the world is sort of slipping out of control. And just as nature itself roars and falls, well, so too the nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall. The people of Israel back then, they were surrounded by big superpowers intent on destruction, not just destroying each other, but also destroying Israel. And last year, the Institute for Economics and World Peace, well, they surveyed 162 countries in order to measure global peacefulness. And what they found kind of looks a bit bleak. They found that only 11 of the 162 countries were not involved in some kind of conflict. 11. So why are the nations in uproar? Well, Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging as well. But what is behind their raging? Well, it's because they are set against God and God's people. And in a world where God is not recognized and submitted to, of course, chaos will ensue. Rebellion against God leads to rebellion against each other, violence against each other, and violence against God's people. But you may be sitting here today thinking, Hong Kong seems far removed from all the troubles so far described. And you're right. Praise God that so far, Hong Kong remains a peaceful place to live as Christians. But I think we often tend to forget that, as Christians, we are a global community, a worldwide family. We're a church in Hong Kong, but we are members of the body of Christ throughout the world. And so in a very real sense, actually, what's happening to Christian brothers and sisters in Syria and other places of persecution, that's also happening to us. So are you praying for your brothers and sisters out there? And I don't want to suggest that Hong Kong itself is actually trouble-free. Um, there are growing concerns here over the economy. How stable will it remain? Concerns about the growing influence of China. What exactly will Hong Kong look like after the official handover in 2047? Will Christians have the same freedom to meet and evangelize? So are we prepared for this. History has taught us that trouble is never too far away from God's people no matter where they are. But note the psalmist's attitude here. He's not telling us about the state of the world to make us despair. No, actually, verse 2, we will not fear, he says. We are not to be afraid or lose heart or run for the hills. But why? Well, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Our God is an ever-present help in trouble. So as Christians, we are not to fear. We think of the most impregnable building in the world. I thought of the Tower of London, although it was broken into in the film Johnny English, that is true. Um, Or think of the strongest person you know in the world. This is what God is like for us, but a thousand times stronger. And note what the psalmist is not saying. He's not saying God is a refuge from trouble. He's not a hiding place where we avoid all the bad things that happen to people caught up in a messy world. He's not a free ticket to a trouble-free life. No, he is our help in trouble. The Christian call is not for a painless, carefree, easy life. Actually, it's a call to withstand the troubles that will come our way. And we have the key. We have the remedy to be resilient. And that's God. So the psalm offers a picture 
of how we are to find our refuge and strength in God. So firstly, we are called to find refuge in God's presence. Have a look at verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you see the contrast? From the roaring and foaming waters in the world, we come to a river and streams within the dwelling place of God. This is where the Most High dwells. And remember how the mountains and the kingdoms are both falling in the world? Well, here in verse 5, the city of God will not fall. So here is security in the midst of chaos, and it's where God dwells with his people. Of course, here the psalmist is referring to Jerusalem, the city of God, where God's king reigned over the people, and the people could come before God in the temple. Here was where the people of God back then held out their hope and confidence. We today know what the psalmist may well have thought unthinkable. The city of Jerusalem did fall. It fell to its enemies. We read later in the Old Testament of how the Israelites in exile wept over the fate of their city. But actually, the city of Jerusalem was never intended to be the full and final place of God's dwelling. It was always a shadow pointing to something greater. And we know something greater did occur. God gave us an even clearer expression of his being with us. For he came himself in human flesh to walk among us. John the Apostle describes Jesus as God dwelling with us. And through Christ's death and resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, it is now the church and every individual believer where God dwells through the Spirit. So the promise here of God's dwelling place never falling well, that applies to us. But what does it mean that we won't fall? Well, here Jesus promised in Matthew 16, he said that the gates of hell shall not overcome the church. We know Satan stirs evil and chaos in this world and sends them against the church. But what a wonderful promise. No matter how bad it looks on the outside, no matter how desperate the situation, the church shall prevail. To use Jesus' imagery, we are sheep among wolves in the world. But we have God's assurance of his care for the sheep. He is with us. He is with his church. And God will not let his church be consumed by the enemy. This doesn't mean, as we've already seen in verse 1, that being Christians mean we are freed from facing harm, from danger, from persecution, even death. Rather, we have this great promise that despite the troubles we may face, we as the body of Christ, the community of faith, will not fall. And we see this, right? The church is ever-expanding throughout the world. Even though the world is full of evil and plotting, the church is surviving, and it's surviving well. God dwells in us and with us. And have a look at the power of our God. The nations are no match for God. We again read in Psalm 2 how God reacts to those who rage and plot against him, the kings or the superpowers who arrange their armies against him. What does God do? Well, God laughs. God scoffs. Why can God laugh? Well, he's laughing at the folly of those who think they can rival God. 
He is the one who merely lifts his voice, in verse 6, and the earth melts. God's very speaking is power beyond what we can imagine. Remember how God spoke the very creation we live in into existence, and he has the power to undo all that through one mere utterance. And look further down to verse 9. When God fights, it's not a fair fight. God can make wars cease. He can break the weapons of the enemy. The things that the enemy relies on to make war, well, they're broken by God and consumed by fire. There is no rival claimant to power. And the God who has the power to do this, well, he's on our side. This divine warrior, he fights for us. He is our ever-present help in trouble. He will help us. He will help us at the break of day. So let us never downsize or downplay the God that we worship. But is God really on our side? Is he really willing to use that power for our sake? Why is the world still so messed up if God has the power to end the evil in one fell swoop? How do we know that he fights for us? Well, the psalmist calls us to trust in God for the future based on what he's done in the past. Have a look at verse 8. An invitation is sent to God's people. They are called to come and to see, to observe divine activity, to see what the Lord has done. Of course, the Israelites had things to look back on. In the Exodus event, God had proved that he was for his people. He was the divine helper, and that he could break the weapons of the enemy, in this case, the Egyptians. Also, this psalm may well have been written after the events of the Assyrian invasion of Israel under Sennacherib during the reign of King Hezekiah. The Assyrian army had taken the second largest city in Israel at the time, actually depicted here in this frieze that you can see in the British Museum. They were going through the land of Israel, destroying everything. They were unstoppable. And they advanced to Jerusalem, intent on capturing it. King Hezekiah in, in Jerusalem, he praised to God for deliverance of the city. And God answered his prayer. We read an angel of the Lord went out and struck down the Assyrian army, forcing them to withdraw back to Assyria. So God's deliverance from the nations was very plain to see in Israel's history. He had quite literally burned the weapons of the enemy. But why have these things not happened more often, you may wonder? Well, I think the answer is that these divine deliverances, these divine judgments upon the enemy, were their pictures that point to a final and full deliverance and judgment by God at the end of the age. They are shadows of a greater reality. God will deal fully and finally with evil, with creations raging and foaming, and with the nations at the last day, the end of history. So inviting the Israelites to come and see what the Lord has done gives them hope and confidence in the future, in the will be. And look at verse 10. God will be exalted. All things will be made right. There will be a return to the state of paradise. The psalmist is calling the people to see that in light of what God has done, they can be assured of what will happen at the end of history. So what about you and me here today? 
Well, it's exactly the same. We too can be assured of the future by looking at the past. But we actually know more than the Israelites knew. For the future has already broken into the past with the coming of Jesus. We know the last page of the story. We know what will happen. We know God has broken the powers of evil through the death of his son. And we know from the son's resurrection that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. The king of the universe has been appointed and he now sits on the throne. He rules over everything. The power of the enemy has already been broken. We also know that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. King Jesus is also the judge. The king will be coming to judge the earth and undo evil. But not yet. We still await that full, final consummation. In the meantime, we know that God is merciful and patient, waiting on people to repent and turn to him. In World War II, uh, the official day marking the end of the war was the 8th of May, 1945. It's celebrated as V-Day or V-E-Day. However, we also remember and celebrate D-Day, the day when the Allied forces invaded German-held Europe in Normandy. But why do we celebrate a day that took place during the war? Well, because this is recognized as the day when actually the war was won. Victory was assured as they defeated the enemy. However, the victory was still to be consummated. War was still to be fought. Lives were still to be lost. Yet the war was, and the war was still officially declared. It wasn't officially declared over for another few months. But victory was certain. So much the same way then, we know victory is assured. And we celebrate when this victory was assured to us, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This gives us hope in the future certainty of evil being fully defeated. But we still face the enemy, the defeated enemy, but we still face the enemy. We are still caught up in conflict. And look at what will happen in verse 10. The two major threats to the people of God described earlier, the earth and the nations, well, they'll actually become sources of praise to God. He will be exalted by them. And this too has already begun. Even now in the present, God is being exalted around the world and in the nations, even in places such as China and the Middle East. Actually, Christianity is spreading rapidly in places with histories of persecution. So as Christians go about proclaiming the gospel and as Jesus draws people to himself from all over the world, God right now is being exalted. So what's the call for God's people to do? Well, I think given the emphasis on God and his actions all throughout the psalm, it comes as no surprise in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God's. Now, this is not a command restricting the mobility of Christians, nor is it a command just to chill out, sit back, relax, have a beer, as if living the Christian life should be done with minimal effort. No, it's not that. 
It's rather a spiritual disposition that his people should possess. A people who know the things that God has done and the things he has promised will happen. It's an attitude of trust, reliance and dependence on God. It's an attitude that also takes into account the world that we live in. The call to stillness does not come from a lack of trouble, but actually it comes from a steady reflection on the ways God has worked and is working in history for the good of his people. So in the face of conflict, in the face of despair, as the world around us seems to crumble, as we face battles in our own lives, it's a call not to flinch in your faith, to keep trusting God, to stay still, not because of any sort of self-confidence, but because of what you know about God. So have you seen what the Lord has done and is doing? And is that translating into hope for the future? It's God's past that provides calm for our future. So as we come to a close then, how does this play out practically? How are we to be still? Well, how do we live in the present? Do we live as if we affirm that all of the above is true? Do we find refuge in God? In these relatively peaceful times in Hong Kong, if we're not living in complete trust and dependence on God, how do you think you would cope in the bad times? So are we praying to God for everything now in times of peace? God is still as much our refuge in the, in the peaceful times as in the bad times. Are we relying on him right now for everything, even if life is going pretty well? And this prepares us for the bad times. For when the bad times come, they will expose what you're really putting your trust in. If your trust is in your wealth, well, you may stop giving to church and to others in times of economic uncertainty. If your trust is in your resume, your job skills, how do you feel if you were made redundant? Would your world fall apart? If your trust is in family or things you possess, what would happen if you lose them? Is your trust and security in God and him alone? And how are we to relate to the raging nations, to those around us who don't share our beliefs, to those who may physically oppose us? Well, if the judge is coming again to bring people to account, we actually are free to love those who persecute us, to love those who cause us trouble. Justice is not ours to dispose. We know that God is that under control. And actually, if we're not number one in our own lives, isn't it easier to forgive people? And of course, for those who are not Christians in the world, the call is there to know God. To know God is to be in a relationship with God. If that's you here today, then can I urge you to find out more about the God that we worship, to seek to know him and to put your trust in him. He is the one refuge there is amidst the broken world. So finally... What keeps us going? Are we trusting in the Lord? Do we look back to Jesus' death for the assurance that God is with us and for us, that he is on our side and that he is king? Do we hope for the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more suffering and evil? Let us live as those who know what blessings we have received and will receive.
no matter how bad life gets, the Lord Almighty is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering and all the wrongs in the world, you are a rock and we can find our refuge in you. Thank you for King Jesus and that he now rules over the world. Help us to live under his rule and help us to keep the future in our minds and help us to love those who are lost in the world. May your gospel continue to be proclaimed and your kingdom to grow. In your son's name we pray. Amen.